I want to be uh, up front that the first reading we had today from Genesis is a, is a passage I do not like. I find it a very hard, very troubling passage, and I'm not alone because I've read and I know theologians that call this passage horrid or horrible or chilling or challenging or all these different things, but it's a very, very hard verse. In fact, it, um, I read recently of the Yiddish uh, folklore story that talks about why did God ask Abraham himself to make this sacrifice? And the answer in this story is because he knew the angels would say no. He knew that the angels would say, you're commanding death? You do it yourself. It's a very hard passage. Within the Christian tradition, uh, we call it the sacrifice of Isaac. Within the Jewish tradition, um, they call it the binding of Isaac. Um, And it's this passage that has been debated for centuries in both traditions, right? Lots of different things. People are asking in part, at least if they're really honest, the question of whether this involves an abusive God. Does this involve a, a misplaced or misguided Abraham? Does it involve religious violence at its worst? Or is it a passage that holds up obedience and faith in ways that should be modeled? These are hard things, and that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to go right into that and look at it. And my prayer and hope is that we'll walk away with this with an appreciation for maybe some of the layers or complexities in it, but also with something we can take into Monday to help us live out our faith. I'm a lifelong Episcopalian, and I will tell you that in all the years that I've heard this passage preached, when it comes up in the lectionary, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything other than this is a passage about obedient faith and an example of faith. And in fairness, Hebrews 11 supports that view. But I think if we pass over it too quickly, we miss some of the complexity and some of the other things that may be there that might enrich our spiritual lives. We back up and look at this passage for a minute. It's kind of an ugly situation that's taking place. Follow me on this, right? I mean, you've got this promise to Abraham, this covenant with Abraham, part of which is that his descendants are going to be like the stars, that he's going, to, he's going to have all these descendants. And they've spent all this time in agony and doubt and wrestling with whether or not they're going to have children, how's this going to work. And they finally have a child in Isaac, and then God shows up on the scene and says to go sacrifice him. And for three days, Abraham is marching along, doesn't say anything, doesn't gripe, doesn't complain, doesn't plead with God. If nothing else, it's a very complicated passage. And if you really want to think about how complicated it is, I think back, I can't remember exactly how many years ago it was when a woman in Houston, whose last name was Yates, said she heard this same kind of call. And unlike Abraham, she didn't have an angel that stopped her. And we would say into that, no, if you hear something like that, you've got it all wrong, go get help. God would never tell you to do that. Oh yeah, but there's this one occasion where he did it famously and we read it all the time. What? What do we do with that? Well, let me step out of this 
line for a second just to say, of course we say that's wrong. Of course we believe, the church believes, God would never say that to you today. But we have to deal with this passage, and it's a passage we read. We read it more than once every year, usually. What do we do with this passage? And I think one of the things we start with, if we're holding it up as this great example of faith, is just begin to ask the question, is this really the faith that we want? Okay, it's a remarkable faith. It is a remarkable faith. Is it a blind faith? Is it a fanatical faith? Is it a fear-based faith? Some really hard questions. I wonder if the really hard, horrible choice that Abraham faces this day is, am I going to say no to the God of the universe, or am I going to speak up and do something for my, own, my son? It's a horrible choice he's got to make. And there's a lot of tension in what happens there. And part of me really wants to skirt quickly to just say, let's just hold this up as a good example of faith. But I think it's a really complicated passage. And if you look back through these debates through the centuries, you'll find many scholars and theologians and people along the way who've put out different ways of trying to lower the tension and this um, conflict that we feel, at least some of us feel within this passage. And there are many more than I can say, but I want to mention a few of them. Sometimes people will say, there's a couple of versions of this, but don't get so wound up on all the ramifications of this passage. Maybe it's meant to just be a, an ideological story that's meant to tell the story of how we got to the place where it was firmly written that there was a line drawn that said, we do not do human sacrifice. And there are other passages in Scripture from Jeremiah and from Leviticus and other places that will say the same thing about not, not doing human sacrifice. But it was a thing that some of the cultures around Israel did at the time. Perhaps some in Israel did. I don't know. And I really don't know what to do with that whole theory. Okay, maybe it is a story that's done for that. We certainly know that's wrong. Or a second theory that gets put out there is that maybe, maybe there is a word problem here. That the words in Hebrew where God tells Abraham to go sacrifice is very close to some, another word that has a completely different meaning. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not good at Hebrew. I have a hard enough time with English. But let me just read with you, <laughs> let me just read with you what one of the um, great scholars, Rabbi Solomon ben Isaac, known as Rashi, he was, he was said to be the greatest Hebrew Bible commentator of the Middle Ages, said about this passage. He writes about it, and I'm going to admit the Hebrew words and just give you the translations. But he says this, he said, when I said to you, take your son, I did not say to you, slaughter him, but only bring him up. Now that you've brought him up, introduce him to me. And then take him back down. This idea that Abraham heard the wrong word and went through all of this. And all God really wanted to do was to have this direct communion with the two of them and with Isaac. And how much heartache could have been avoided if he'd heard that right. I don't know. How do we, how do we know if that's the mistake that got made? But that's certainly one theory that's been put out there. Another theory that gets put out there is, an, is similar in the sense of saying, don't get worked up over the ramifications of this thing, but just look at it this way. It was put into Scripture so that there would be a resonance between that 
and Jesus and the self-sacrifice of God and Jesus, God's only son and the parallels that take place between that. And that's probably the reason why we read this passage again often at the vigil, the Easter vigil, sometimes on Good Friday, because there, there, there are these parallels, the sacrifice of one's only son in this way. And there are lots of different ways it lines up and parallels, even thinking about how Jesus carries his own cross to the place of death, and Isaac is carrying the wood up to the fire pit altar where the sacrifice is to be. There's lots of parallels there. Maybe, maybe that's another way to look at it. Just hold it as something was dropped to resonate with Jesus down the road in the future. A fourth way to look at it is one that I, I want to dwell on just a little more. Um, it is one that says, look, wait, if we've, what if we have read this passage wrong? And this passage really is about Abraham being tested but failing the test. And there are a number of variations on how this gets presented. The first time I ever heard this was in seminary from my Old Testament professor who put this out, put a version of this out there. There are a number of different versions. I want to give one. And to think about Abraham for a minute, all right, just think about him. All right, so we're in the 22nd chapter of Genesis today. We've been having this um, discourse about Abraham and God and their relationship for the last 10 chapters. And then four chapters ago, when we, in chapter 18, is when you get to this part where Abraham encounters these three, and one of them he understands to be the Lord, and they're on the way to destroy Sodom. And Abraham, in the way, along the way, says, you know, how, how can you do this? Because there's bound to be innocent people in Sodom. And he, he steps up to God, and he pleads with God, and he argues with God. And I want to give you just a little flavor of that. This is from Genesis 18:25. He says, "Surely you will not destroy the innocent with the guilty. That's impossible. You cannot do that. If you did, the innocent would be punished along with the guilty. That's impossible. The judge of all the earth has to act justly." And he pleads for them and he pleads for 45 and then he does 40 and then he does 30 and then he does 20 and then he does 10. And he keeps just pushing on God saying, this isn't right. What do we find these innocent people in all this? That Abraham did not show up today in this passage. You get three days of Abraham walking with Isaac, going to this mountain where he knows what's going to happen, what he's been told. And we don't get anything in the record about Abraham stepping up and pleading and begging or doing anything else. We don't get that. It just doesn't happen. And it seems to be this huge void in the story. And I think it's interesting, too, when you look at both Jewish scholars and Christian scholars, some of them will go back and look and draw the parallels between what happens with Ishmael and Hagar and this moment with Abraham and Isaac. Because Ishmael and Isaac, you get these parallels, right? You, you both have these um, episodes where it starts out by sort of saying, you've got to get rid of these sons of yours. Ishmael's got to be banished and put out, sent off. Isaac's got to go be sacrificed. And you get parallels that the passages talk about uh, waking up early to begin this process and doing this. 
And you get this parallel that they both talk about how the end is near. And then you get this parallel where at the last minute, they both get a reprieve. With Ishmael, they find a, a well of water. They don't die of thirst. With Abraham and Isaac, the angel intercedes and a ram is caught in the bushes and a ram is used. And then following that, the angel comes to them and blesses them and tells them all these good things are going to happen with generations to come. And both of them, the final parallel is that both of them pivoted around the parent finding something, locating something. I mean, we get Hagar finding the well. We get Abraham finding the ram stuck in the thicket and all of this. You get both of them finding something. But there is a really, really big, huge difference. Because in the case of, with Ishmael, his mom is crying out, begging, pleading with God. But in the case of Isaac, Abraham is silent. There's nothing in the record about it. And it just seems like, what? What parent wouldn't plead? I know this passage was always bothersome to me before I had children, but after having two boys, I, can, I could barely read it at first. How could he not plead? How could he not beg? And you get passages like the one from Psalm 103, where we're reminded where um, it says, as a father has mercy on children, so does the Lord have mercy on those who fear him. That's the way it's meant to be. A father is supposed to have mercy and love for his child this way. So that's why some would say, on this day, Abraham doesn't show up with that, and he fails. He fails whatever the test that God's giving him. He doesn't intercede. He doesn't plead. He doesn't do anything. And then you may not see it or notice it or think about it, but there are consequences that some would point to that flow from this moment. Some of them get a little bit subtle. If you look at Isaac, for example, there are two parts of the passage that were read where it talks about how Abraham and Isaac are walking together, and it goes out of the way to talk about how they're walking together as they head towards the mountain. And then after this event is over, you don't hear that. You hear how Abraham came down to his servants and they headed on. No mention of Isaac. And you sit there wondering, was this the final rift? Some have gone as far as to say that Isaac didn't even go with him, that Isaac headed to a different place. All these kinds of things. But you get the sense that there's a rift there. And there's certainly a change we also see, a consequence perhaps, taking place between Abraham and God. Because you get this, before all this, these chapters that have gone before, these 10 chapters, all these communications have really been between God, one-on-one with Abraham. But after this event, God never does that again. Every communication after this with Abraham is through an angel. It's as if he's saying, there's a consequence for this. This is one of these things. This is not a model. Well, the final thing I have to say about this whole episode in terms of just playing out the events that took place before we unpack it a little more is to note how God does provide. Let's say for a minute that Abraham did fail. The next thing we get, nonetheless, is God providing. The angel stops him, and there's a ram caught in the thicket, and the ram is sacrificed, and God provides and sort of redeems that moment. 
And I want to spend the rest of our time just maybe unpacking this a little bit. If you get nothing else from today's sermon, forgive me, but I hope you'll walk away with a new sense of complexity to the passage where you're not just saying, what a great example of faith, because it's a complex passage with some things in it. I think if we're living into the gospel fully, we don't like. And I have this, this motto or theme that I have that the sermon has to matter to us on Monday or it really doesn't matter. So I want to give three thoughts for you to reflect on this week. And there are probably many, many more, but I want to give three. The first I've just mentioned that to, to appreciate the complexity of this passage and to be okay with that scripture is at times complicated. Sometimes there are no easy black and white, simple answers to scripture and it's okay. One form of prayer, some call it Thomistic prayer, is to just walk with questions, continue to pray through questions that Scripture presents. So maybe that's one offering of today's passage. Hmm, lots of layers, complicated. Let me pray and walk with this passage, maybe for a long time, maybe for the rest of my life. I think the second practical thing of this passage is it's a place in Scripture that carves out a moment to really bemoan the complicated, difficult, horrible choices that we sometimes have to make in life. There's a place in Scripture where you can sit and watch one of these. As I've said before, I think Abraham has got this horrible decision. Am I going to stand up for my son whom I love so much? Am I going to lie to him as he did and tell him, yeah, that there's going to be something, you're not going to be the one sacrificed, but he, he knows that's what he's been told? Or are you going to stand up to the God of the universe and say, no, you, you, the God of all, have got this wrong. Like, you've got to reconsider this. He's got a terrible choice. I know friends of mine who've walked through that in the last year, where they've had to think about horrible choices, where at the end of the day, if we're honest, they're making choices between two evils. This is terrible. That's terrible. Which one are you going to do? But you have to do one of them. Sometimes life is like that. This is a moment in Scripture where we see somebody, I think, facing that choice. And it puts us in that same place. I um, saw recently um, a passage that was suggested by a professor, Juliana Clausens, who write, wrote um, talking about a book, Challenging Prophetic Literature, by Julia O'Brien. And she repeats a story in there about one of her seminary students named Lynn, who is writing a sermon about this passage of Scripture from Genesis 22. And she says this about the student. She gave up trying to make this text into something beautiful and uplifting and simply wept. She wept not only just for the characters in the story, but also for herself and for her culture. In this sermon, her student went on, she gave her congregation permission that the text had not given Abraham to weep for the tragic situations of their own lives and for the horrible choices they feel they have no choice but to make at times. Julia O'Brien goes on to say how nonetheless she felt this student presented good news, that there's a place that's hollowed out for us to bemoan these kinds of decisions. And the final thing I would say, the third thing I would say to reflect on, at least for me, if it's a right interpretation, I leave that to you to think about, 
that Abraham had this test and he failed it. Then I think it offers us some more things to think about. Because it's a reminder to us that God nonetheless uses broken people. I know when I first went into ministry, I had somebody say, you're not good enough for ministry. And I had to go read Henry Nowen's Wounded Healer about three times. And even now, when I mess up, I think about not being good enough for ministry. But the scriptural record, and in today also, we see, I think, a reminder that God uses broken people again and again in ministry. He uses broken things, He redeems them, and He uses them for His glory. All we have to do is invite Him to do that. This passage, we see Abraham go on to be called to bless the world. We see how God, even in this situation, provided. And the angel shows up at the end, and the angel doesn't rebuke him. But I don't think that angel showing up and talking about the blessing and what have you doesn't mean it's a condoning of what he did or how it went. To me, it shows love. And I'll, I'll end with this story of the kind of love I think it is. It's the kind of love who, when the father of a small child shows up at home, and the little boy meets him at the door and says, Dad, Dad, you've got to come see how much I love you and what I've done. And the little boy brings the dad into the living room of the house that's just, they've just spent thousands of dollars painting. And the little boy has gotten a magic marker, and he's drawn on the wall a big heart, and he's wrote in the middle of it, I love you, Dad. And at first reaction, if he let him do it, the dad would scold the child and just go nuts over what's happened with all the money that's been spent. But if he holds his thoughts and think about it, he says, I love you too. Next time, do you think we could use paper? Don't write on the wall, but I love you. And I think there's some of that perhaps today with Abraham. The God, the patient God, shows us forgiveness and shows us love and provides and teaches generations to come what that looks like, the love and the forgiveness. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the witness of Scripture, even with all its complexities. Lord, give us a heart and a mind that's open to seeing different things in it, to trusting you in it. And we ask that you would use it as a tool to mold us into your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.